You're listening to Two Sides of Phi, a podcast that follows two lifelong friends as they seek financial independence and to retire early. I'm Eric, and I'm joined by my friend Jason, who reached Phi in 2020. And this is our story. Since we have thousands of followers now, we have thousands of questions. So you've gone ahead and, and called from the list of thousands of questions the most pertinent ones for us. We're going to, we're going to grind through those today. Right. What do, what do we have? Like six, <laughs> six questions, 10, 10 or 11. I think we're forcing a Q and a episode here, but we're going to do it oh, anyway. God. It's not, it's not that forced actually. If you think about it, a dozen questions, even if we spent uh, only two minutes on each, that would be 24 minutes. <laughs> we had and a guest. I mean, the truth is we had a guest lined up and the guest had an emergency. So I had to bail. So right. here we are. Why don't I start with just a, it's a softball question. Okay. It's not, it's not actually, I haven't seen these questions and you have, so I feel <laughs> this exciting. Slightly yeah, I unprepared. Like it that way. Well, that's what happens when you're busy. We don't get the chance to talk about this <laughs> stuff and uh, you're spending your time on more, more important things than little old me. Not true. Question number one, <laughs> which is harder getting to fire or being there? Mm. It is an interesting question, and we've dug into this topic a bit from the sort of mindset piece, you know, the doing the math, running the numbers, actually figuring out a savings goal, doing all the financial planning at some level feels like a problem you can solve, right? Um, but it, there's an unknowable aspect to the whole reaching financial independence and stepping away from your job. If you choose to do that, that is, um, yeah, that's kind of a mystery to me. So it'll be interesting to hear you discuss you know, actually arriving there since you've been through, you know, the other half of the question that I can't possibly answer. But I would say the, um, the initial savings process and, and figuring out the sort of roadmap to get there actually feels pretty manageable uh, when you break it down into these little steps that we've been talking about along the way. How, what's, your, what's your feeling and response since you've been on both sides of Phi now? Sure. So I completely agree with everything you said, which I, I know you love. Um, but on the other hand, I'd say something I'd add to the getting the fire. It also depends on the kind of path you take. Right. And so for some people that uh, sort of, you know, amassing sufficient savings and, you know, working through their the sort of investments they need to get to that point is going to come at different levels of difficulty. And, and some of that will also be how much you've engaged with the community. You know, do you have other people, you know, in your network you can refer to and kind of bounce ideas off? You know, it, it can be a very individual thing. And increasingly these days with the resources we have, be more community based. And that may make it easier. Certainly the uh, I guess the loftiness of your goals as well could also challenge the process, how difficult or hard it is, right? If you're a, yeah, on the true. lower side of the income <clears throat> spectrum and you're aiming for a you know chubby to fat fire, um, see that episode for definitions, um, that's gonna be a, a tougher slog, right? You're gonna have to save a higher percentage of your savings and, and potentially find other income streams. So I would say the answer is it depends. Yeah. Now on the being there side, yes, I can start to answer it because uh, as we record this, I'm about a year after leaving the workplace. And I would say I don't yet know how hard it is to uh, be on the other side. So as we talked about in the episode reviewing my first year after leaving the workplace, it's gone great so far. So I would say this side is easier, right? I'm not working anymore. I'm not building up those assets and taking the decisions about do I move around the country to you know support my sort of leveling up strategy. Uh, and things have largely gone the way that I expected in terms of how I've been spending my time. So that's been really great, really rewarding, very happy about it. 
but who knows what I'll think a couple of years from now. Yep. Um, so yeah. I, I suspect early days being right? on <laughs> the other side is easier, but it's early days to your point. Yeah. So it's interesting that you answered it that way. Cause I'm looking at it from a very uh, kind of myopic view. It's like, okay, I'm laser focused on this number. So I've, I've already done that, that kind of all the steps that I yeah. walk through and part of that, the initial foundation for that is having, you know, certain income level to do that. So if you have, if you're younger and you're earning less or you have a big family, or as you said, your financial goals are maybe more lofty, or let's say you want to pay for your five children to go through college, then right. yeah, it probably, it probably will feel like a bit of a slog, but I, there is a lot of power that comes from just the planning aspect of it, at least for Definitely. me personally. And I know you're a planner too. So, um, just having that framework that you can kind of plug into makes it all feel more manageable to me. All right. So Jason, uh, right. since you're in the drawdown phase, what are your thoughts about how you envisage feeling as the money runs toward the quote end? Yeah, if you make optimistic. it to your say worst case scenario, let's say 50 years, either with a ton of money or nothing left at say, 80. I'm really interested in your response to this because I'm hoping you're going to be, you're going to skew way toward the uh, high end and you're going to be, you know, having these great wine tasting parties when we're yeah. in our seventies. So, so what sounds good. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I actually really like this question. I, I would say the, the, the short version, cause you know, you're going to get a long version <laughs> is I don't worry about it. Uh, I have a plan that assumes a very long lifetime that I'm going to, you know, follow the trajectory of many people in my yeah, family. Yeah, yeah, F 50 and that means plus the, years, right? <laughs> that means the plan's got to survive. Now, the longer answer is, yeah, that that's all well and good, but what do the numbers support? Well, everything we do, as we've talked about before, is based in modeling simulations and it's just chock full of assumptions, right? And the question is always, how wrong is your model? Um, and even if I can say that I have a 95% likelihood of success, there's still a 5% chance, as you have pointed out, and we've talked about this before, of complete failure. Yep. And that's what this this person is getting at when they say, you know, the money running out at 80 versus having a lot left uh, at the end. So obviously, I hope for the situation where I have a lot left at the end, because then I would be thinking about what types of um, kind of directed giving could I put in place or other kind of family legacy uh, kind of giving. And you know, based on my looking at the numbers, you'll have some sense in the early stage whether you're on a bad model line or not. Right. So yeah. it's not like this will come as a surprise at 75. Hey, guess what? You're out of money. So how so, how does that exactly work? What's the point where the portfolio is too big to fail? Yeah. Like, well, there, there seems to be a mathematical point, at least when I put in all of my parameters using Seafire Sim or one of the other programs out there where the lines, you know, they're, they're not going down. They are only going up. Whereas yeah. if you have, especially, you know, early issues, sequence of returns risk, for example, where they're going to start to flatten out and go down and you can see that coming. And so, I mean, in that, so it's the answer to your question is yes, there, there is a point where the portfolio is too big to fail. I don't recall that picture off the top of my head. But one thing that is true is if you do have issues early on in drawdown, you know, just market collapse or, you know, you know, huge unexpected expenditures for some reason, you'll see that and you'll know that adjustments have to be made. Now, almost certainly that will include, you know, lessening your withdrawal rate 
It might include identifying other sources of income in a, in, a, in a really awful situation to help get things kind of back on the path so that they can begin the growth phase again. Those things are certainly possible, but for myself at least, I'm curious how you think about this since you are very much building towards the end stage of setting and, and achieving your number. I guess what I think is um, I have tried to design this plan as foolproof as I can. I have not gone to a 100% likelihood of success, but most models have me north of 95%. So yeah, I think about those uh, uh, possibilities of running out early, but I also know that I'm sufficiently attentive to see it coming and that I am willing to take action if I have to. Yeah. They, How about you? Um, well, I'm very worried about the drawdown phase because the savings phase feels so easy and immediate yes. and fun and i also have income coming in all the time and so i i wonder how that's going to feel to start spending it sure but i'm also very focused on this idea of not necessarily wanting to you know die with 40 million dollars in the bank like that that, yeah. that doesn't feel like success to me <laughs> that nope, feels like a, like kind of major failure um so what i want to do is put in place a system I think, which is what you're talking about, whereby I'm able to evaluate it every year, see what the curve is looking like, and then adjust my spending to keep the curve to a normal sort of growth rate, like not an exponential growth rate necessarily, but like, because I want to be able to enjoy the spoils of that. And the older I get, I think the the less value money actually has to your quality of life. That That's just my personal yeah. take. Uh, but um it's those early years where you're most vulnerable to the sequence of returns risk. And it's those early years where you're youngest and you want to be doing all these things that you've been maybe delaying for your working life. Um, so it's, I don't have an easy answer here. I, I, and I can see the genesis of the question is that, yeah. Hey, we're, this is something we all worry about. And, and I, I wanted to kind of follow up and ask you, does the, withdrawal rate change after five years? Like, are you going to reevaluate that? Yeah, this, I, I'm actually glad you asked this because what you don't know is one of the, one of the questions submitted is does your withdrawal rate change with age? Oh, and okay. I think it's a, it's a relatively common question and it's a, it's a great jump off here. So for me, I have started on the conservative side of withdrawal rate. That just fits my MO very well. Which is, and so um, well, my target max was three and a half percent when I designed the model. And because of the way the market has performed over the last you know, year and a half, I'm drawing below three yeah. percent. And I feel very good about that, of course, because it's great to be spending less than you are able to. So you're not because, feeding your family? Like, what have, what have you given yeah, up? Yeah, we're with? not feeding the family. We're only shopping at the dented can store. And, uh, <laughs> Wait, I you let have them, one of those? <laughs> I know. The I let them go out to store. dinner. <laughs> I let them go out to dinner, you know, once a year. No, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously kidding. Uh, we're keeping our budget really well, actually, I think. And, uh, you know, when we have extra income, as we've talked about some of the things that my wife does for uh, – that she enjoys doing tutoring and things like that. Yeah, we spend that money. We're yeah. not socking it away like hoarders worried about this this return risk. I absolutely agree that if I am on one of the better curves, I will absolutely increase my withdrawal rate. I think um, you know we are being more conservative in the early years. Helps us sleep well at night. And while not everybody in the fire community feels this way, I like a little early conservative. Right, but how so, many years are we talking here? 
Well, three years, five I've years. Heard, I've heard I've heard nobody say fewer than five years right. for sequence of returns risk, and there are certainly people out there who start to look more at ten years. But let me uh, ask you this: all of that modeling, well, you know, the Monte Carlo stuff was done on like a thirty-year traditional retirement. Yep. So kind of breaks down here, doesn't it? <laughs> well, no, actually the the simulations I'm doing do permute over the full duration. Oh, okay. So I choose 50 year okay. terms. Yeah, that's a great question because it is true that just on the surface saying 4% rule is sufficient is absolutely based on a 30 year time frame in the original study. There have been some updates to that then. Some people actually believe you could go even higher than 4% based on those updates. But again, for me, I sleep better at night knowing that I'm withdrawing below. I know. Uh, yeah, you do. But man, there is a lot of research out there. I know. With people pushing five, six, like, and then sure. if you start accounting for Social Security, because yep. are we really going to get rid of an entitlement program that's so entwined in society here? No, and I don't believe so in the U.S. No, I don't believe so either. So, and, and that's one of the things when I was doing some of this Monte Carlo analysis, for my portfolio recently, I started playing around with this passive income because you, you suggested it. You said, hey, like, yeah. okay, you're making a certain set of assumptions. Do you think you're gonna earn any passive income in retirement? And I said, yeah, I am. And so then I started playing around with what these numbers are. And the the portfolio gets to like way higher than 90% <laughs> once yeah, you start doing does. that. And yep. and so you have to, you, you have to understand that social security is gonna come in as a little sort of life ring in some respects, and then who knows Absolutely. about inheritances or other things. I mean, there's certainly other downsides that are difficult to account for, catastrophic health things, who knows, you know, economy-wise, what the stock market is gonna be doing in 10 years, but. Of course. Um, yeah, I, so you think five years, it's gonna be a minimum of five years before you're able to ramp up your spending, huh? I think so, barring some windfall or some additional income source. Your yeah, daughter's going to be in, in college then, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's all planned. So do you think if she chooses a more expensive school, maybe you step in and fund more of that? Or what's your like? does it change anything else, any other assumptions that you've made now? Uh, I would say not in the moment. Yeah. I think so far, I mean, yeah, things would stay as is. Buy another house? Nope. <laughs> that if we're on the crazy curve, I, and, and this question would be better to answer when we have our spouses with us uh, on, on a show. The crazy curve. I, I, I think Lori would definitely be pushing for the uh, Tuscan Villa or uh, some some other uh, housing down the road. But, Dude, you uh, can get me, some. You can get those for like a buck right now. <laughs> those are not Tuscan villas. Those are those are houses in specific parts of Italy that are <laughs> really dangerous uh, parts of Italy. <laughs> well, some of them, yes. <laughs> Some of them, yes, but uh, sure. Uh, the short, the much shorter answer would be, as time goes on and as you know the the curves move in the right direction, I will absolutely increase spending, and I also love the idea of being able to direct. Uh, some giving as well, uh, because nothing's going to feel better, you know, when you get kind of late in life to to kind of look back and say we've done all the things we want to do, and we've given, you know, we've done charitable giving in in causes we care about, and that's you know part of your legacy, right? Yeah, yeah, that's great. I think for me, definitely, that withdrawal rate is going to increase as soon as I feel comfortable. I mean, I'm always going to be looking at these numbers as if it were year one, me retiring. 
I, that's yeah. kind of how I picture it. Like, well, maybe, that. maybe for at least the fi- first five years. And then I, I presume at a certain level, you, at a certain point you get comfortable with the whole thing. And like, I mean, you're one year into it. So you have a baseline level of comfort and I'm sure next year when we talk about this, you're just not even going to want to talk about it. <laughs> I guess we'll see. Um, so far, so good. <laughs> we'll find out. In the numbers episode, you talked about your fine number being in the range of two to five million dollars. Could you be more specific? I could, but I'm not going to be. Just knowing the number for you or me individually, who cares? I mean, yeah. what if my if I said my number is five point eight million dollars? What does that matter? Right. <laughs> it's like, yeah, someone. I think we said this in that that episode, but you know, if you pull your boat into the Harbor, someone always has a bigger boat, man. Totally. It's like, there are people I'm listening to this, uh, financial samurai podcast recently. And, and this is a guy who thinks you need a minimum of $10 million to retire. And the withdrawal exactly. rate is something ridiculous, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and that doesn't work for that me. Is. Um, there's really two things you have to think about here. It's, not just about a number, the number is just an outcome. The two factors are, what is the lifestyle I want to live? What are my costs, right? What are my expenses that I have to cover? And then what is my degree of uh, sort of conservatism or um, you know, lack of concern? And that gets you to withdrawal rate, right? That's that risk tolerance piece. That's the better way to put it. And once you have the first piece, which is a budgeting exercise and a frank discussion with whoever you share your life with and your family. Um, how do we want to live? What kind of vacations do we want to take, et cetera? The other piece is a risk number. It's mathematical. And you've heard you know, me say my target withdrawal rate was no more than three and a half percent. And that gives me a certain likelihood of success over a number of years. So in essence, the absolute number doesn't matter because for me, it's driven by the way I want to live. And we have chosen to live in uh, the central coast of California. It's not the most expensive part in the country, but it's also far from the least expensive part of the country. So that's a big part of our monthly spend. If you're choosing to live in a much lower cost of living area and you wanna live more of a lean fire lifestyle, well, obviously your monthly expenses are gonna be lower. Personally, I, th- I like this idea of, of you talking about the different factors and I think that's what we try to present in that episode and with every episode that we're talking here, but as a photographer, there's this kind of triangle. It's ISO, shutter speed, and aperture, right? Yep. And those things are just like your life. You know, if you crank up the ISO, it's more light sensitive. So you can close down the aperture and like you can just mess with these things infinitely, but you just have to decide what's important to you. Is it important to have a blurred background? Okay. If so, you need to crank open the aperture. You know, it's like, is it important for you to live in a city? Okay. You probably have to save more. So knowing the exact number kind of, kind of pointless. I think we gave the range just to say that, okay, what, you know, the gradation of financial independence for us trended toward having, uh, a lifestyle that wasn't predicated on living somewhere like in the boonies basically, or that we wouldn't be able to travel in the way that we like to travel and do the things that we like to do. So it's just about determining what's important to you and less about the money. Cause I mean this, I don't know where this person who's asking this question is, but if they're asking it from, you know, somewhere in the Philippines that has, who cares if I want to have 5.8 million, you know, right, that that's right. going to go way far in the Philippines or Costa Rica. Or I like Columbus. your analogy of the triangle 
by the way. I think that that's a very practical way to think about it. Um, another practical comment on the bigger boat uh, uh, story. I was so glad when I discovered that there, somebody had created a Chubby Fire subreddit because <laughs> I used to go back and forth between the Lean Fire subreddit where I didn't feel super comfortable because a right. lot of it was about sort of lifestyle reduction to the Fat Fire one which has the craziest range I've ever seen in my life. I mean, some of these people would have you believe if you don't have $20 million, well, you, you're just scraping by. Yeah, it's the Susie, and, and, Susie Orman version yeah, of retirement. And that's yeah. not, not where you and I are thinking at all. And so when, when somebody made a happy place in the middle, it was much more tightly constrained. I felt a lot more comfortable that I was, honestly, I was I was getting feedback and from people who were more like the lifestyle we were targeting. And so I think that's, that's a, a way I would wrap up my thoughts on this question. Yeah, Finding like the that. community. Yeah that you identify with, that's going to help you calibrate much better than any absolute number in a vacuum. And, and part of that is sampling all the different ranges. Cause maybe yeah. what we're talking about doesn't resonate at all with, with what your version of Phi is, you know, it might be the lean thing. You might just be backpacking and that's perfectly fine. I, I could totally. envision a lifestyle that would be completely comfortable and totally happy. Not for me, but for someone yeah. else. And, and equally, like, I don't know, there's a part of that, like, <laughs> fat fire that I'm super attracted to, like the helicopter and, you know, the giant boat. <laughs> yes. Style. I'm super, like, Who I can always want a yacht. No, I could always level up. Great. <laughs> yeah. It's not what we're aiming for. But if someone showed up with a crude yacht, and right. said, this is yours. Yeah, I'm on board. <laughs> which no is problem. why or if, Eric's trawler by the way man we I mean one of the things I was hoping you would say in the answer to that question about you know withdrawal rates and you know your big pot of money that's building here is like what's the you know giving back to you know your friends family I mean screw the charities I said family <laughs> I didn't say friends apparently my priorities you only bastard. lie with people I don't know and my family, everybody in between, <laughs> right, you just go to hell. Thanks, dude. Yeah, I appreciate that. Do you include rental real estate as a any part of your portfolio? It is not part of my personal portfolio. I understand the merit that many people see in having rental real estate as part of their strategy. For me, that doesn't feel nearly passive enough. That's going to be actively managed, even if you have a company doing it. So no, and I don't foresee the likelihood of that coming to pass. Eric, how about you? Same answer. I'm not, not interested in becoming a landlord. I actually don't even have REITs in my, uh, you know, my paper assets. So oh, okay. I know I that's, do. you do. Yeah. And I know that's one way of kind of getting exposure to that. Um, but no, I don't, I don't have interest in that, but in part, uh, I think people use that to to gain passive income. It's a steady stream of income, and I understand why people have it. But I have um, different streams of passive income that I think, in some ways, uh, obviate the need for rental real estate. For big expenses, yeah. how do you decide? As a team, to take those on, what kinds of discussions do you have? Has, has there been a process you guys have found effective? What do you do? Um, yeah, I, get, I mean, I wish I could say I was more strategic in thinking about it, but having kind of organized my financial life at this point, I think you just really need to consider how you're leveraging debt and, you know, at least here in the U S and I, and I know the person who asked the question is not from the U S. Um, so I can't speak to what it's like in other countries, but you know, here in the U S it's certainly incentivized to own your own home. 
and so you know borrowing money to do to do that it comes at a pretty low cost and so i think a lot of people especially in the fire community look at leveraging debt as a means for um you know gaining something that you obviously need to live somewhere right um and if you can take the money that you might have otherwise, you know, dumped into a house and, you know, achieved all that equity um, and you can invest it in something that may achieve a higher return, you know, that's probably a smart thing to do financially. It's certainly something you've chosen to do as you entered FI, right? What, yeah. what are your thoughts on this? Um, I identify with everything you said. I, I think the one thing I was going to add from a more, maybe it's a more mechanical answer, honestly, is... I think the important thing to do, especially if one part of the couple is more into the sort of financial uh, machinery than the other person, um, I have always been the one, you know, when these ideas come up to kind of do the modeling uh-huh. to make it very visible. Right. Right. You know, it's one thing to meaning to renting that, versus like, yeah, renting versus buying, you know, make something simple in a spreadsheet. I mean, my wife's a scientist too. It's not like I have to dumb down the math. She gets it. Yeah. But, just go through the exercise and and as a couple, you can decide this does or doesn't make sense or the sacrifices we're going to have to make are, are perfect right now. Or you know what? Waiting another year would look like this. Do we want to do that instead? I, I think it's I'm always when it comes to financial things and I, I tried to approach it this way in the workplace, too. I think it's very important to just make it really obvious, you know, practice, you know, all of us look at problems, especially big problems in different ways. And it's only when you look at things over time. And, and see the true impact on your budget on, you know, what it's going to mean for trade-offs you're going to have to take. I've always found that a very valuable approach. And, yeah. I, and I appreciate when people do that for me too. And and it's, you know, so p- some of the things that would factor into that were how long you plan to live in a place, right? Generally, they say buying a house is minimum of a five-year commitment because you have a lot of, you know, transacting on real estate comes along with a lot of other costs, right? Sure. Closing costs, lawyer fees, like, title insurance, all of these things. Um, so I, I think, you know, that's a, a consideration. Um, what kind of market you're buying into? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, is do you expect this is something that's going to appreciate in value? Or is it, you know, are you buying in a neighborhood which is maybe kind of borderline? And you don't know which way it's going to tip. Um, I, th- I think I, I like that idea of sort of modeling it out because in a lot of ways it just takes the emotion out of it. And I feel... For sure if I sort of rewind to my own personal experience buying a house, that was a notion I had always kept in my mind. Like, well, I, I, my parents never owned their own home when I was growing up with them at least. Um, so it was something, it was aspirational for me. And Laura was the same way. We both grew up in apartments and never having owned a home. And so that felt very emotional, that tug to have a place of my own, you know, the grass that's ours kind of thing. And it's easy to, overspend, (laughs) I think on a place, especially you fall in love with the location or, you know, Oh, there's never going to be another place like this. And, and that tends to help you, you know, inflate the amount of money that you think you can afford for this thing. So this, there is a lot of emotion involved in this kind of transaction. And so to remove that and just do the math is super helpful. So I think that's a, that's a great answer. Okay, so Jason, this next question definitely applies to you since you're post-fire. At least here in the U.S., we associate a lot of our personal identity with the workplace, who we are, what we do, um, how we project ourselves to our friends and family, uh, people in the community. 
Do you feel the need to maybe sort of reinvent that uh, after reaching Phi, stepping away from the workplace? What are your thoughts yeah. on that? It's funny because I, I think there's a distinction between title, like your job title and your abilities and things that you yeah. enjoy and that you oh, have I agree. capabilities in. But that's and your identity too, right? And that's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's like your workplace identity. Like I have a job that is at this level and people see me in this way. And that's obviously gone. That, and that's not likely to come back unless I go back on my sort of path here and re-enter the biotech workplace. That's never going to return. I'll right. never and be VP of whatever. And I'm okay with that. So that is gone. So the question remains, what am I now? Somebody who's enjoying finding their way in the world. Uh, I'm still a parent. I'm still a spouse. I'm still somebody who enjoys education and learning and building skills and trying to contribute in whatever ways I can. And we'll see what that translates to. But for sure, my identity changed. I think the hard part is, and I... I'm only just starting to have these conversations because I'm opening the door to some people and saying, oh, this is what I'm thinking of doing next. You know, so yeah. I'm, I'm saying locally here, you feel compelled to answer what you're going to do. And, and so yeah. a lot of that is, I think, a fear of losing your identity and or what people identify you with. You know, like people think of me here as an architect primarily, you know, and yeah. I don't actually even think of myself as an architect, as much as I think of myself as like a content creator or a photographer, or like kind of sh short filmmaker, like I, yeah. th that's my personal identity. Um, and but, is that due to percent time you spend in each endeavor these days or like just personally how you think of yourself? Like what, what, what do you think underlies that? I mean, I think it's, yeah, a lot of it has to do with time. Like where you spend your time is what you're interested in. And therefore by extension is becomes who you are. And I, I, the only kind of way I can frame this is how the business on day one and my identity as an architect, um, evolved into business on year eight and, and how okay. I think of myself as a cluster of different things. And I'm just way more comfortable being the cluster of things and being able to dip in and out of uh, all of these different disciplines and interests rather than right. just being one thing. So I think <clears throat> I, I'm not sure that's accessible to everybody. And I, one of the things maybe that you found in this first year of, you know, Phi is that you can be all of these different things and you don't have to be defined by one thing, but it's an uncomfortable yes. process kind of coming to terms with that because you're not, you're used to being the one thing you're used to coming up with an answer for. So what do you do? It's like, well, now the answer has to be, I do all of these different things, you know, a little bit of everything. Yeah. And, and that's not, an easy answer to give like at a cocktail party to something. Correct. Personally, I'm very comfortable with where I am right. and what I'm doing, yeah. but it is difficult to explain to others <laughs> right. and it can be frustrating when everybody wants an answer because you have to justify feel, it. <laughs> right. And for some of them, they want you to sort of justify the decision you've taken. And that says often says a lot about the people you're talking to quite honestly. Yeah. Um, but I also know that, doesn't it make concept. you want, doesn't it make you want to turn around and say, oh, well, why are you a scientist? Like, why are you still a, a VP of science or something like that? Like, that's the kind yeah. of it. Th there's a part of me that gets like really kind of gets me fired up 
<laughs> inside. Yeah, I know you can't literally. really do that at, at cocktail parties very easily, but <laughs> it depends how well you know the people, I guess. Makes you the uh, aggressive drunk. <laughs> I, I mean, for, or just aggressive. I mean, for me, usually my response goes something, you know, along the lines, if, especially if we're talking about somebody you know well. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of ways to go through life, right? I mean, being a hermit and living a cave in a cave is just as valid a choice as the traditional sort of Western ethos of what, you know, adult life is supposed to be like, right? How could you say one is less valid? Well, maybe less common, but it's not the only way. And, you know, for me, I could easily get just as judgy about people living completely consumption lifestyles, right? Constantly buying boats and jet skis and vacation property that they can't actually afford and then complaining about not being able to afford <laughs> things and work and saying that they have to work until 70 because it's the only way they can pay for it. Yeah. Now, I don't do that. Um, there's a lot of different choices that we make and there's a lot of different desires we have and things that will make us feel fulfilled. And for me and you and others on this path, we have decided at a certain point after which we achieve financial independence we are likely to stop doing what we're doing or at least change the way in which we have done it for years because we have other things we want to do. Yeah. And I so, don't want my definition of, of my personal identity to be inextricably linked to how I earn money. Yeah, me. Exactly. Right. That's a we conscious choice. Yeah. <laughs> we are on the same page. And, and, you know, honestly, I'm somebody that always tried my best to bring my full self to work. And for some people I may have, uh, shown more of myself your full in, uh, self <laughs> professional content well look a lot of people put on airs at work yeah, particularly true. as they level up your honest a lot of self yeah. feel like it's still as soon as you get to certain levels of management you've got to become incredibly stuffy and boring and just toe the line and get the haircut and do all the right stuff <laughs> i obviously did not feel that way uh obviously i had i had shorter hair you pulled work, it back too years. didn't you i did pull it back you played yeah. the game but, i saw you had those little plaid shirts and stuff man you know they were not tucked in though so you know we've all got to decide I did too. <laughs> yeah. how we carry ourselves and how much we show of our authentic self at work and you know some people want to separate those things more than others and that's a fine choice but um here again it might be it. it might be a community-based thing too i mean I'm, oh yeah so yeah, if i picture fair. if i insert myself into the community of people who are driving trawlers up and down the east coast and like trying to go across the bering sea which is like yeah. one of my next steps i bet they're not going to ask me like you know so what is it that you do for a living yeah <laughs> yeah that's true you know what i mean i i do think it is a, a community-based uh, thing and also just personal confidence like it's like you said you're happy with how life is going and completely satisfied with what's, you know, what your future plans are. Like there's nothing better than that. And I think the part when I get, start to get my back up a little bit, it's that little seed of doubt inside that says, maybe they're right. Maybe I really, maybe this is a yeah. dumb idea, you know? And I, I, I wonder if that ever goes away, honestly, cause I, I, sometimes I see you react like that too, but, um, you know, it's, well, it's well, not to be questioned. Yeah. I never think it was a dumb idea. I'm, I'm, I'm increasingly confident that this was the right path for me. <laughs> Good. I do not miss most of the things about the workplace. And I've said this to you one-on-one -on -one before, but yeah. I miss the people. 
right? I miss Ooh. having those certain friends or, you know, being able to kind of rally around something that was annoying and deal with it together <laughs> and complain about it and triumph over it. Like, but you can have that stuff outside of work. You know, I, I don't miss the practice of work that I did. I was very fulfilled by it. It was at times exciting, <laughs> at times awful. I don't miss it. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> cool. I got plenty to do. <laughs> you don't have to justify it to me, man. Nope. Join us as the conversation continues next time on Two Sides of Fi. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider rating it at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For show notes, resources, and links to the video version, please check out our website at twosidesoffi.com. Two Sides of Fi.